You're listening to an ACR 2021 podcast, a compilation of reports, interviews, perspectives, and panel discussions that feature the Room Now faculty and noted experts. Hope you enjoy. It's setting up my webinar, so I have to wait a second. There we go. All right, now we start. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the evening recap of ACR 2021. It is Sunday night. We are into day two. Um, I'm joined by the Room Now faculty who've been working hard all day, all night. They're not allowed to sleep for a five-day span. Um, and that's even more interesting if you live in Australia like Dr. David Liu. Um, I don't even want to know what time he's trying to consume this meeting at. Let me introduce our faculty. Um, as I mentioned, David Liu, he's in Melbourne. Um, uh, Dr. Minnie Day in Liverpool. Dr. Robert Chow in Virginia. Moral El Marahi's in, in Indianapolis. And Swetha Ann Alexander is in Connecticut. I'm Jack Cush in Dallas. Let's begin. I want to encourage the audience to um, comment on this, or if they have any questions, stick them in the chat box. We'll try to get them. We're going to cover first posters, then the plenary, then some other sessions, and we'll end with your questions. So folks, uh, it was really quite a busy day. I was watching you on Twitter. It was voluminous. In fact, in our first day, the numbers were staggering. Um, I think as a group, you put up over 400 tweets. I think you did 25 or, or 30 videos. Um, I wanna say that you put up 25 news articles that were gonna put in rotation. So our faculty has been really busy. Congratulations on that. But let's start with the poster session from this morning. Is there anything that stood out for anyone? Um, let's start with um, David. Oh, and I'll say that I started by, um, my Twitter feed had a photo of some Mexican food and a Corona um, at the beginning of the day. And, uh, you know, because I, you know, I, in SF, I usually go to the Mission Districts and it's a cool place. And, you know, I just wanted to feel like I might be there. So it's probably um, fitting that I looked at um, Fibroscan in, in methotrexate, you know, given all the, all the calories I consumed this morning. Uh, so it was a, some really interesting um, data from the University of British Columbia, actually looking, and I mean, there's all this talk, um, there's all been this talk previously about cumulative methotrexate dose, and um, and I think our dermatology colleagues get really worried about. Well, traditionally, I've got really worried about that. But there's some really reassuring data saying there's no correlation between cumulative methotrexate dose and um, fibrosis on fibroscan, at least um, the way we do things. Yeah, now it was done in rheumatoids, wasn't it? Yeah, rheumatology clinic. So a mix of. Um, uh, RA, um, a bit of bit of PSA and some other conditions as well, but um, really our patients doing our kind of monitoring and really there's not undetected fibrosis under there. So I breathed a sigh of relief, really. I was quite happy with that. Yeah, I think that the um, we go back to the old uh, methotrexate monitoring guidelines of Kremer, Alarcon, and, you know, basically five abnormal uh, LFTs in a year's time. We're supposed to be doing, um, you know, every month back then. So basically more than 50% of your labs, you know, that's, that's a chance to either change or drop or assess, you know, and other tests like this, they seem like they might be cool, but 
they're for other people like the GI guys. Um, does anybody else use or think about using uh, fiber, the fiber scans or have any other tool that they use? I just get L uh, ultrasound and people have LFTs mainly looking for fatty liver, right? Fatty liver is driven by inflammation. And I mean, I think what we've seen time and time again from these studies, in fact, the drivers um, of fibrosis in these patients, it's not the methotrexate. It's the underlying metabolic syndrome. It's a non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And those calories I consumed this morning haven't helped my cause. And that's what it comes down to. Swetha, what did you see that was great? I want to introduce Swetha to the audience. She's a third year resident at UConn, is going to do a rheumatology fellowship. I met her in a meeting. I was so delighted at her interest. I wanted her to be part of the faculty. Mm -hmm. We're glad you're joining us. What did you see that you like today? Thank you so much, Dr. Kirsch. So um, my interest is in spondyloarthritis. So I looked at a poster um, in axial spondyloarthritis. And what I did see was um, the, this poster sort of tried to predict flares in axial spondyloarthritis when you taper off the TNFI if the axial spondyloarthritis was in remission. And they found that some of the predictors of the flare was a higher baseline initial physician global score and a higher age. So that was interesting to me. You know, the, this is the big thing in rheumatology, Swetha, you, we, we talk too much about um, tapering our drugs and, um, you know, trying to make it simple. And I want to, I always remind the drug company CEOs who want to talk to me about their drug um, monotherapy stuff and that like you can withdraw therapy. I say, hey, don't try to simplify something I spent my whole life trying to control and using multiple drugs and lots of blood, sweat and tears and there's no easy out. And the problem is patients, I think, want to take less drug and you got to coach them. So, you know, good, data like that's helpful. But the question is, um, do we just go along with it? What does the group think? Do, uh, you know, Robert, you're, you're big into Spondy now and, and uh, you've seen some of this data roll out in the last uh, few meetings. Is there a trend here to want to taper uh, these drugs with spinal arthritis? You know, I think I was actually going to comment on this, it was a very, very interesting study. Um, you know, first of all, in clinical practice, I'm not sure about you guys, but sometimes before we even get into the diagnosis of AS, before I even mention, you know, what the frequency of a TNF inhibitor is, the patient's first question is, Doc, when can I stop? So let's let's diagnose and treat it first, maybe. And then let's, you know, maybe I used to actually say maybe, you know, sometime down the line, at least with me, I like to see you staple for some time before we can talk about stopping therapy um, or even tapering. And I think the other really interesting thing out of this study, um, one is I think it, the old adage, you know, kind of rings true, whereas listen to your doctor, you know, the, the only thing they found here was uh, physician global. And if you look at the other data for here, they looked at, so the, the clinical sort of flares was one of them, but they also looked at image, imaging flare and they looked at imaging findings and even imaging could not outpace the physician global. So this was actually a pretty nuanced study. And I think it gives us a lot of, I guess, ammunition when we talk to patients about, hey, you know, I, I don't think, um, you know, stopping is a good idea, tapering you know, maybe under close guidance, but, uh, you know, I think it helps us a lot, especially in our discussion with patients. Being the only white-haired person on this panel, I'm going to give you a little wisdom. And that is, yeah, that question comes up all the time. It's a challenge. And, and I tell the patient, you've got a bad disease. We don't know who's going to go to remission or not. 
you show me one year of remission and now we can have the discussion about tapering and maybe going off. And they're like, really? And I go, yeah, it's that difficult because in, at least in RA, the number of people could truly go be in drug-free remission is less than 10%, you know, uh, no matter how you slice it. Uh, so anyway, you know, I think that you need to have a, an approach and having this kind of data helps. Um, can I make one point there, Jack? I just, it stuns me that we, um, we're doing all this tapering. Well, we've seen these tapering studies, but people are tapering and we've got all this science. We can measure drug levels and we're not matching the two up that we just, we seem to be randomly dropping down patients and then being surprised when we get bad outcomes. I'd love to see us take a little bit more science to the, to try and identify the right patients to drop if we're going to drop it at all and try and maybe look at their drug levels. If the ones who have drug levels that are too high or the ones who have the right, you know, omics profile, maybe that's the future if we really are going to taper. You know, I, I think our GI colleagues do a pretty good job of actually looking at antibodies. When I talk to my GI friends, they do keep a pretty close eye on the, on the you know, uh, biologic antibodies from time to time. We do have a few reports here on therapeutic drug monitoring, and it hasn't fared as well in rheumatology, though. But yet there's going to be a press conference on this on Monday at 1130. Um, and I think that, you know, we're, we're open to the a smarter, better way, as opposed to, you know, using rheumatology gestalt. Uh, let, let's see what the data, but I think David's uh, call for a better way makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. And actually, guys, just to piggyback off this topic, so I don't know if you guys had a chance to check out Abstract 0916. It was the C-Optimize study, and it looked at early active AXPA patients that received certiluzumab, initially 200 milligrams every two weeks for 48 weeks. And then if they achieved remission with this treatment regimen, they were blindly randomized to certiluzumab every two weeks versus every four weeks versus placebo. And actually continuation of full dose or reduced dose of certiluzumab does provide benefit compared to stopping treatment completely. And although the placebo group did not have any flares, they did have higher numerical disease activity as represented by ASDAS and BASDI, and they had higher inflammatory markers as represented by CRP and fecal calprotectin. So, you know, arguably we should keep the same, some dose of certiluzumab on board or some dose of a DMAR therapy on board based on this study. But I think David's point um, is well taken and maybe that's the future of rheumatologies to get better at monitoring drugs. You know, I think it, 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 you have to look at patients um, deep enough and long enough to know the true story here. We have, we, we have seen some studies in tapering across the board, doesn't matter the disease, where tapering in the short term looks like it's okay. You know, 24, maybe even, you know, 52 week outcomes, but, you know, they don't have a biologic measure. They don't have an imaging outcome. They don't have a longer term outcome. And that's where things start to unravel in a substantial minority. The question is, was it worth the risk? And can you recapture? So we'll see. I mean, I think we need more, more data and, and we're glad that we're having these covered. Um, Dr. Day, what did, you, what did you see that you liked this morning? Yeah, so something completely different. So moving from drugs to um, self-management. So earlier this year, ULA produced a really good set of guidelines on self-management strategies um, in inflammatory arthritis. So something that caught my attention was uh, poster 0795. Um, so this was a study looking at um, a group of patients through questionnaires and looking at treatment response and actually seeing um, who would benefit most from um, early intervention with self-management um, early on in their disease so that then you can figure out who's going to 
you know, the early determinants of long-term self-efficacy going through their disease course. Um, so that was actually quite interesting because it's all very well having the guidelines for self-management, but actually how can we capture people early on in their disease and encourage them to do this right from the word go um, in conjunction with all of the therapeutic and pharmaceutical stuff. And what's so, the end point on success there? Um, they were looking at the treatment response um, and it was actually found that the patient reported outcomes um, and treatment response itself were the, the key determinant factors um, for long-term long -term self-management. And the bottom line was that self-management and its early institution led to better outcomes? Yeah, yeah. So um, the, the patient report, a better patient reported outcomes and um, the treatment response that would then lead to longer term self-management. Um, so I think the key is capturing it um, early on in disease, um, not just sort of treating to target pharmaceutically, but also with the self-management strategies. You know, it sounds kind of touchy-feely kind of approach to disease, but you know what? We are not very good at teaching the patient how to be a patient, right? We're good at telling them the millions of things we know and do this, do this, get that, get that. And we don't, I'll cover safety and we'll get the optimized efficacy. We'll measure your levels. We keep saying, let's wait and see what the labs show. And nowhere along the line do we teach a patient how to be a patient, you know, how to make better decisions. And so they leave the, you know, the office and they have non-compliance issues. They, and, and, and we get upset, but really what, I think this kind of program really does help bridge that gap in many, many ways. And I, I, I like seeing that sort of thing. I wish, I wish I had it 30 years ago when I first started. So, mm -hmm. all right, uh, let's get into, and any other posters, anybody wants to bring up? Robert, did you want another one or, that you brought up? Sure, sure. You know, uh, one of the really interesting posters is actually on um, psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. I think every year there is some, you know, uh, onus on, on uh, the microbiome, gut microbiome this year as well. And I think every year there's like, you know, incremental steps and in advancements. This was actually one of the first monozygotic twin studies uh, on psoriasis and potential uh, advancement into um, or progression into psoriatic arthritis. And um, not only did, did they look at gut microbiome, but they also looked at the skin flora. And this one bug, I'm going to try to do some more research on it. Ruminococcus keeps popping up in yesterday's abstracts and today's. Uh, they found in psoriasis patients, there was either a, a very much uh, high reduction in this or just it was absent in the gut of psoriatic uh, patients. Um, they found it also even in, you know, skin, normal skin, healthy skin of psoriasis patients, there was a difference in the flora. Um, so, you know, I think obviously we focus a lot on cytokine inhibition and, and biologic treatment. Uh, I think, you know, it's just a matter of time before the therapy either uh, reroutes to the gut microbiome therapy, or it's a combination of the two. I think that's where you have some targeted therapy that can really sort of advance uh, psoriatic arthritis and psoriasis treatment. Robert, what do you think of this? The, the, uh, these microbiome studies are really compelling, gives us another dimension uh, uh, to consider with these patients. But do you know, do you have a feeling at this point? Does anybody on the panel have a feeling at this point whether the microbiome component, especially when it shows a real difference, is it operative because it's adding to inflammation or because it's impairing dr drug effect? You know, in cancer, they've shown microbiome to have an 
important effects on drug efficacy. And I don't know if they fully have blamed drug efficacy, but do, do you have a feeling about this, Robert? I don't think so. And I don't think, I mean, I don't want to speak on behalf of all the researchers, but I think, you know, that's always the, the sort of end question. I think a lot of the studies I've seen are, hey, we found this. Look, this is what we found. It's either increased or decreased, but we, we're not quite sure what to do next with that information. And even this study, you know, the, I think the take-home message is we need to figure out what are the downstream kind of, you know, meanings of this. Um, how do we use this information? Like you said, is it affecting uh, the drug metabolism or is this inherently uh, causing the disease itself? Good, dude. I mean, we're only just skimming the surface with this as well, right? I, I know you mentioned checkpoint inhibitors and there's been some really interesting work in that space there um, in cancer, but I think we don't, I mean, we really don't know about, um, we can't bring it down to exact species. We don't know about where in, in our development this occurs and there's a whole lot of data to suggest that perhaps it's really our, how our microbiome looks early in life that makes a real difference. Um, and, you know, I think plausibly at this point, it's more about trying to encourage um, better um, just general um, diversity and there is some you know talks about that yesterday yesterday in respect to RA but we just seem so so far away from being able to harness it and know exactly what to do with it I mean living healthy is great and I think we should all be doing that of course but to get to the point where we're really, really doing precision me me uh, medicine on the microbiome we're so far away from that all right let's get into the plenaries uh, we could we could go on about that forever um, who has a favorite? Let's say, let, let's, uh, anybody want to talk about the lupus plenaries today? All right. Um, how about the vital study? Vitamin D, you want to get me going? Start talking vitamin D. Oh, there's David. He's ready. He was looking for a vitamin D face off with me. Um, and, and three fatty acids. Uh, David, maybe you want to talk about that, that presentation. You know what? I've got this bottle in hand and I had to dust it off today. It's been sitting <laughs> oh, in my man. over there, right? Um, yeah, I don't even know. This is expired, actually. Don't tell anyone I took that. I shouldn't have told everyone. But the, the point out of this is that um, I think there was a lot, there's a lot of excitement, mainly because we don't have any, any medicine at the moment that can pre prevent us from developing autoimmunity in the first place. So it's a really enticing idea. And of course, if it's something that you can buy off the, off the supplement shelf at, at, your, at, the, um, at the pharmacy and that's uh, at the drugstore, then that's, that's you know, a really enticing kind of option. But the reality is, is that I think the numbers was probably a little bit too early to say at this point in time, you know, depending on whether you included which way you spliced and diced it, things were, weren't or were significant, you know, and, and really I think the, the key bit as well is going to be extension because we saw the first five years right now of a study that wasn't even designed to look at this, that this is a spin-off study, um, the vital study looking at um, vitamin D and, and, and uh, omega-3 fatty acids and the crossover. Um, We've only seen this first five years and the benefits, if it's, if it's there, is going to go on beyond that. Now, if there's an argument for vitamin D, it's a fact that if you looked at vitamin D with confirmed autoimmunity and you could start to see from about uh, three years onward, the, the two arms of the Kaplan-Meier just peel away from each other. And so I'd really like to see the 10-year data, but I'm probably going to have to wait for ACI 2026 for that. The, I want to talk about the numbers first. It was about, I want to say it was like 27,000. Patients, this was a cancer cardiovascular outcome study. Um, the number of autoimmune, and it's autoimmune disease, not any one of the, it's autoimmune disease, whatever that means. And it means that it's a, that's all usually a wrong diagnosis outside the hands of a rheumatologist. 
uh, was what, 140 or something like that cases. And, you know, there's six of this and seven of that and all that sort of thing. So there's some problems here. The other problem is that up to 30% of the, of the, of all patients had a family history of autoimmune disease. Mm -hmm. There was a high number of people with autoimmune thyroid disease, but not confirmed with autoimmune testing. And, you know, thyroid disease got a high incidence of ANA positivity that could go all kinds of ways diagnostically. Um, again, the data, and, you know, Karen Kostenbach showed some really good data that if you looked at patients who were two years out, the data got better, meaning the longer they were on the, the vitamin D and the N3 fatty acids, that the data looked a little bit better. So I have some problems with, you know, um, making a lot out of a little but it still is something that one, everyone wants to hear. Doc, what drug can I take? What, what, what's my diet gotta be going forward? And load up on vitamin D and omega-3s or whatever. So anybody have another take on this? Morale. I mean, I think everything in moderation, I think in the United States, at least we suffer from vitamin D deficiency quite a bit. I always check vitamin D levels in some of my patients based on the studies that come out and suggest or pretend that there's worse disease activity in rheumatoid arthritis. And I remember a clinical pearl that Dr. Petrie had taught us in fellowship, they always try to keep the vitamin D level above a certain number in lupus patients. So I do think there is some importance in monitoring vitamin D. I worry a little bit that if everyone takes vitamin D without monitoring uh, that we might have that end of the spectrum where we're getting hyper vitamin D um, problems. And we know that that's one of the vitamins that isn't water soluble. So you definitely can overdose on it and have toxicity issues related to that. But I do think the studies is exciting. It helps empower us to empower patients. And I'm looking forward to studies that might be a little more applicable, applicable to more patients than just those who have a family history of autoimmune disease. Sadly, I don't know we're ever going to get a study as good as this one. You know, this is prospective, well-designed, large, you know, maybe just following this cohort going on might tell us more. Um, uh, we need to get into the 1133 oral surveillance study presented by Christina uh, Charles Showman from UCLA, where she showed in a high-risk population, uh, mostly older people with cardiovascular risk factors and smoking and not taking aspirin and you know, it's just not a good group. What happens when you use a JAK inhibitor, topocetinib at 5 BID or 10 BID versus a TNF inhibitor? And they showed more cardiovascular events, more cancer events. And today they, they looked at a lot of different things here, um, clearly showing that, um, that there was a higher rate um, and that it was beyond non-inferior um, for um, some of the measures that they looked at. Um, who's got a take-home message to that? Uh, Swetha, what did you think of that data? Did you see it? No. Okay, because it's a, it, it's a really, I, I wanted to ask your, your opinion first, because I think every, we've been discussing this so much right now in rheumatology. Um, uh, what do you think, Robert? You know, I, I, I think at the take-home message, great, we have, it's not inferior, it's you know, superior. And I think it's really, you know, when it comes to the patient, how do you have that discussion? And I don't know if I'm any better, you know, before the study and now with discussing with the patient. I mean, perhaps, obviously, I think the only kind of patient I'd be very 
or not very a little bit more comfortable with is a young patient. Like for example, I, I have a young patient on, on uh, or many young patients on, on uh, Jack and Ibs. Uh, perhaps I can say, hey, listen, the data, you know, showed usually men who are older, uh, but the average kind of RA patient that we have, I think we're still kind of left scratching our heads. And for me, at least it comes down to a collective patient physician kind of uh, decision um, are these risk factors. Of course, with the black box warning that adds, you know, whether or not you agree with that, that adds another kind of nuance to the discussion. Many you guys have better access, I think, to Jack and Hibbers than we do. In uh, yeah. David, you too. So I want to hear from you too what you think of this data and how it's affected your practices. I'll let David go first, but usually, because I'm quite a junior trainee, I, the decision on Jacks is left to someone, <laughs> one of my seniors. But yeah, I mean, we we do we don't have the same kind of level of restriction as you do in the U.S. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think I'm looking forward to Tuesday when more of this data is going to be uh, right. discussed. Definitely, um, it'll be interesting. I think it was a nice, nice little teaser today uh, with that um, it's, presentation. It's the first big dose, but there's a lot more to come. Yeah. David, how has this affected you? Well, um, so in Australia, we're, we've been prolific Jack inhibitor users. Uh, we can use it um, once a patient qualifies for biologic or targeted synthetic. Uh, we can choose what we want. And so we've probably um, had higher take up than basically most of the world. Um, so I think look at this, there's a, um, if you look at the breakdown and you look at MI um, in this, it looks like there's a real signal. And I think it's hard to put hand on heart and say, no, there's nothing to worry about here. But I mean, you got to, this is a certain population and you've got to try and put the risk in magnitude. In, in magnitude. And I think probably the key thing was actually what um, the presenter, Christina uh, Charles Showman said, um, near the end in the questions, and I've written it down because I knew it was, this is, it's a pertinent point. For many patients, it doesn't matter if there's an increased risk because they don't want to go to the alternative. And that's been my, my experience in clinic. Um, you know, I have, I, I remember last week, a conversation I had with one of my patients uh, who has stents in and um, has done brilliantly on, on a JAK inhibitor and uh, just nodded and smiled when I had the conversation and said, well, thanks doc, but um, that's great. Next question. So as this data rolls out, I want you to keep in mind a few things. Number one, the FDA has said that for people starting these drugs, you have to start a TNF inhibitor first based on this data, <laughs> not, a, not a, more so than a JAK. Second, these are bad patients where bad things happen, but the event rates are really very low. The number needed to harm here for cardiac event is around 500. And it's even higher if you're looking at the standard dose of toposidin at five milligrams BID. It's worse with the higher dose. So I think, and the last thing I want you to re remember is it's up against TNF inhibitors, which have been proven to lower risk. So this may have nothing to do with an augmented risk by JAK inhibitors. This may have everything to do with better cardio protection with a TNF inhibitor. And that's, how does that change your thinking? Well, it does seem to inform the FDA decision to use a TNF inhibitor first, but the discussion you're gonna have with your patients, if my patient's on the drug and they're doing well, I'm just gonna let them go. And then we'll discuss this when it comes up. But with a new patient, you're gonna to have to have this discussion. I'll give the last word to Morale. So, you know, this is tough because just last week in clinic, I had several patients in their seventies with a pretty exorbitant 
a cardiovascular disease history. One of them just had a non-stentable lesion on left heart cath about six months ago. And so, you know, yeah, I agree with you. I think there's more yet to be determined. Is it really because TNF inhibitors are cardioprotective and that's what's driving this data or not? But I think I feel an onus at least until we further delineate what the etiology behind this new signal is, that I am actually trying to transition patients who have a really high cardiovascular disease morbidity that are, and are older than 65 and are cigarette smokers or recently stopped smoking. I'm having that conversation and I'm pushing for transitioning. Okay. I mean, it's a, it really has to boil down to that discussion you have with the patient. I want to end with the wisdom of the room now faculty that can be um, given to our audience about how to learn in a virtual world. All of us hate Zoom, but you guys are Zoomatologists. You're sitting at the desk for six, eight hours a day. You're tweeting like mad. You're writing articles. You're doing vi video. How can, I mean, given what you had to do, what would you suggest? Moral, why don't you start? Just give, give me a, a, a few seconds on what you would advise uh, people who are going to ask you. How can I learn well in a virtual um, program like this? I think the best way is to pick one topic area that day that you want to tackle. I find it very overwhelming to try to do more than one topic, even though I'm so excited to learn as much as I can in every different topic. But for instance, I just focus on RA first half of the morning or all day. And I'll just target abstracts related to RA. I'll target plenary sessions related to RA. And then I'll, I'll put in a, a little twist and do fun things like knowledge bowl or thieves market or um, uh, what was the other thing that was today that was really exciting? Oh, the clinical pearl session. So yeah. something that's really exciting. That's So that's how I do it. And, and there's a search tool on the website that really helps you be able to focus and hone in like that. That's a great formula for learning. You stay on something, but then you change it up by doing something interesting. Then you go back to something that you sustain and you change it up. That's really smart. Swetha, how have you approached this? You're sort of your, I think, first big rheumatology meeting and you're very interested in spa. What did you learn? So um, I think just going off of what um, uh, Miral said, basically focusing on one topic and uh, the tweeting thing, like, okay, going through like articles and trying to find out and synopse it into just a few sentences that really, I thought that was very helpful. And that sort of like makes you put everything into a nutshell and you go through more things that you need to. Um, and um, today uh, morning, um, I think there was a session um, for like room to learn, calling the millennial learners. I thought that was a very helpful session. So I think using these interactive platforms is quite helpful. Tweeting will focus the mind like nothing else. That's a quote from Ronan Kavanaugh from Galway. Robert, what's your advice? No, I, I think with everything being on Zoom and, and on video, it's kind of mirrors the work from home kind of situation where actually you end up working more and, and doing more than at the office. Um, so I go back to, to uh, one of the early kind of teachings I learned in, in, in training, which is preparation, preparation, preparation. And then if the preparation's good, execution is, is easy. So what I try to do is, you know, the night before or the few days before the conference, um, you know, scout out what kind of sessions, abstracts I really want to put in my agenda. And then every day I've got a nice roadmap and hopefully it's relatively clear. And, and don't be too overwhelmed. Don't try to look at everything just because you can. Mm -hmm. How about you, Minnie? 
Yeah, no, I agree that you don't have that stress of running from room to room in a large conference center. Um, and so you, you have to really focus your mind and not, I, I have this habit of having two screens on at once and sometimes stupidly having two <laughs> sessions on at once, which is, which is terrible. Um, so yeah, really need to focus the mind, choose what you're going to uh, focus on for that day. And actually really going to like the high yield stuff, like the clinical pearls, that was really good. You learn so much in such a short space of time, which is a trainee I really value. Um, and actually Twitter, there's some really good tweeters who are doing really good threads. Um, so, you know, if you have missed a session, like there are so many good threads available, which have summarized everything for you. Um, so, yeah, I really recommend that as well. You know, and David does a lot of that. He starts a, a tweet. He's really good at it. And then he gets involved in the conversation, like someone responds and you go back and you share it. And that's kind of what we're doing here. So the best way to learn a meeting like this is actually figure out how you get together and you can do it virtually by, by, by Twitter. David, last word. Yeah, and I think all of all of mine have been taken. But I think the thing I find really great about um, this virtual platform is having some quite interesting democratic conversations on the side, the chat, the questions, all of these. This is often where the pearls and the honest kind of truths are dropped. So um, I think uh, staying there for that and listening to that and watching that chat box really does deliver yield. And I mean, I can see that here. We've had some great comments in the um in the Zoom panel, in the, in the panel, um, in this chat. And, uh, you know, hopefully we can keep this, keep this conversation going. Yeah. Uh, we've run over time. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm not going to get to any of your questions. Um, no, a black box warning will not probably increase malpractice uh, for any one position, but yes, there'll be more lawyers that will be advertising this all night long. Um, and we'll see where that goes. Thanks very much for your time. Um, tune, tune in tomorrow. We have another session. Uh, on Monday night and then Tuesday night, it's going to be Rheumatology Roundup, Kavanaugh and myself. Uh, take care, tune into Room Now. Okay, so I just stopped the recording, um, but we should sign off as soon as possible before we say something that the remaining um, 60, 70 people online will, will see. So thanks everyone, did a great job. Thank you so much.